0: Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.
1: Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. I'm your host, Colleen Dully. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican, This week with Jerry Away, we've invited a guest for a deeper discussion into Pope Francis' recent decisions on two U.S. bishops. Bishop Joseph Strickland from Texas was recently removed from his diocese in Tyler, Texas, by the Pope, and Cardinal Raymond Burke, a former Vatican official, had his salary and apartment at the Vatican revoked by the Pope. Both are notable critics of the Pope, especially among the U.S. bishops, and their removals have sparked considerable discussion and debate from all sides of the Catholic community. And so we welcome to Inside the Vatican this week, Mike Lewis. He's the editor-in-chief of Where Peter Is, a blog site dedicated to countering narratives put forward by the small but vocal resistance to Pope Francis in the U.S. He joins me from the Washington, D.C. area. Good morning from New Orleans, Mike.
2: Good morning, Colleen. Thank you for having me.
1: I'm so not used to saying that with someone else's name. So, Mike, you've had your eyes really close on this resistance to Pope Francis in the U.S., which Strickland and Burke were both figures of. Their situations are very different, both in context and in the particulars. They do have a couple things in common. They're both American bishops. They've been critical of Francis to the point of questioning his orthodoxy. And the actions taken against them happened at almost exactly the same time but let's start with the basics. So who are these bishops and how have their profiles risen throughout the Francis papacy? Let's start with Burke.
2: Well, Cardinal Burke is probably the the better choice to start from because he was part of the conclave that elected Pope Francis in 2013. And by the end of 2013, he was already starting to voice a little bit of doubt, let's say, about the Pope's authority and the weight of Pope Francis's teaching. For example, when Evangeli Gaudium, which is the apostolic exhortation that Pope Francis released, that basically gave his programmatic overview for the church, when that came out, Cardinal Burke told Raymond Arroyo of EWTN's The World Over Live that the document wasn't part of the magisterium. Then in early 2014, when Pope Francis called for the extraordinary synod on the family. He invited Cardinal Casper to deliver his message on the gospel of the family, talking about how to better integrate divorced and civilly remarried Catholics. Cardinal Burke became part of a vocal resistance to this, and he was very outspoken during the first synod in which he took part. He said things like the Catholic Church seems like a ship without a rudder. He was removed from his position as the head of the Vatican Supreme Court, the Apostolic Signatura.
1: Why was he removed from the Apostolic Signatura?
2: From what I understand, it was because Pope Francis approached him and asked him if there were reforms that could help simplify the annulment process. And my understanding is that Cardinal Burke said that such reform was impossible. And Pope Francis decided to go ahead and work around him, essentially starting a a separate commission to, to revisit that question, and canon law was modified as a result. In 2015, he gave an interview where he was asked that if Pope Francis was to accommodate divorced and remarried Catholics, giving them access to the sacraments in some way, he told the reporter that he would resist. So this sets the stage for Amoris Letitia, which is the apostolic exhortation that followed those synods. That came out in April 2016. About a week later, Cardinal Burke said that these were just private reflections of the Pope and didn't participate in the magisterium. So once again, he's denying the magisterial authority of a landmark document of the Pope. And by the end of the year, he was the most outspoken of the four dubia cardinals, who published a document that challenged the orthodoxy of Amoris Letizia?
1: And as we remember, that was the first of two dubia addressed to the Pope that he would sign. The other was right before the Synod.
2: I think what Pope Francis sensed early on was something of an inability to work closely with Cardinal Burke. And so he named him Cardinal Patron of the Order of Malta. But shortly thereafter, there was a canonical dispute there. And Cardinal Burke found himself retaining the title, but being replaced by others in the role of patron and spiritual advisor to the order. So since early 2017 or so, Cardinal Burke hasn't really had an official job per se. All
1: right, let's go stateside now to Bishop Strickland, who was in Tyler, Texas. What can you tell me about his kind of rise during the Francis papacy?
2: Well, At the beginning of Pope Francis's papacy, he was fairly new as the Bishop of Tyler, Texas. He was one of the original priests of the Diocese of Tyler. He was originally from that area. It was part of the Diocese of Dallas. When Tyler split off to be its own diocese in the 80s, he was one of the original priests. He was a canon lawyer. He worked at the cathedral. He was a pretty high-profile priest in Tyler, and then in 2012, he was named the Bishop of his home diocese. He didn't really make much of a splash until 2018. Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, the former Apostolic Nuncio of the United States, released his 11-page testimony alleging that Pope Francis had actively covered up for then-Cardinal McCarrick and his abuse. Bishop Strickland was one of the very first U.S. bishops to respond. He posted on the diocesan website a letter stating that he found the accusations against Pope Francis credible and he wanted his letter read at all of the masses in the diocese. As time went on, he became an increasingly more visible public figure. When COVID came around, he was very active on Twitter. He was calling against shutdowns of churches and following public health protocols. And then once the COVID vaccine was being brought to market, he became outspoken in tweeting out memes and conspiracy theories and calling against Catholics taking the vaccine. Remember this is during the time of QAnon, this is when a lot of people were saying that the the vaccine was abortion tainted even though the the DDF and Pope Francis said that it was licit and it was beneficial for the common good. It was election season. I mean, it was a, it was a very tense time in our country and I think that's how he rose to prominence.
1: So we know a little about how Strickland was removed. There was this investigation into his governance of the diocese. It unearthed some problems. We're low on details because the Vatican doesn't publish these reports that come from these investigations, but ultimately he was removed likely because of those governing issues. Burke, on the other hand, we know less about. So what can you say by way of explanation of why Burke's privileges were revoked?
2: The question that I have about it is, is why now? There are a few things that we can point to. He turned 75 at the end of June, and a little bit before that, his replacement as the official Cardinal patron of the Order of Malta, Cardinal Girolanda, was was named to replace him. So he had no formal function in the Vatican anymore. Also, perhaps Pope Francis had reached the end of his patience with, with Cardinal Burke because with the Synod coming up in October... Cardinal Burke took part in in a number of initiatives to undermine the synod. For example, he provided the preface to a book that was published by the American TFP Tradition Family Property Organization that called the synod on synodality a Pandora's box. And then on the eve of the synod, he delivered a speech at a Synodal Babel conference basically comparing the synod to the Tower of Babel in which he tore apart the concept of synodality in its entirety and said it wasn't consistent with Catholicism, one would imagine that these kinds of activities could have been the final straw. And Pope Francis sent a signal that this is really over the line, especially since this is is seen as the landmark initiative of Pope Francis's papacy. And for one of the most visible cardinals in, in the entire college to just smash that entire concept seems to be a level of insubordination or subversion that's that's unprecedented I think in the you know at, at least in the last 150 years of of cardinals
1: that leads us to talking about your website where Peter is and why you started it can you just tell us the story
2: I was raised catholic I was not a traditionalist growing up but I would say that I was tradition adjacent my grandfather who was a very influential part of my upbringing was real. was one of those catholics who was really really hurt by vatican ii he didn't like the changes in the mass so you know i grew up with this with this cynical idea of the faith a little bit and i grew up something of a culture warrior and i realized at a point in my life probably 2011 2012 that I hadn't really experienced my faith as a source of joy or consolation. And so I, I really started to dig deeply into Catholic social teaching and started to take my faith a lot more seriously and also really dove into the teachings of recent popes like John XXIII, Paul Sixth, John Paul II, and Benedict and really to appreciate what the Pope means for the church.
1: And then you have this Pope elected who's all about joy, whose first document is the joy of the gospel.
2: Exactly. And and it tapped right into where I was spiritually at the moment. And I was working at the U.S. Conference for Catholic Bishops at the time he was elected in 2013. I was in the publishing office where every single one of his speeches or addresses came across my radar. And I was just gobbling up everything that he wrote. But within a year or two, I began to notice that a lot of my Catholic friends and a lot of the the Catholic influencers that I had admired for a long time were voicing distrust or suspicion about Pope Francis. And they didn't seem to understand where he was coming from. So to make a long story short, after I left the USCCB, I thought to myself maybe there's something I can add to this conversation that's going on to help Catholics in the US understand what Pope Francis is trying to do to for lack of a better word to translate his messages that they maybe weren't getting into a framework that they could understand. So myself and a group of three other lay Catholics who had never met each other in person but had sort of we'd sort of come across each other in these online debates as defenders of Francis. We thought, why don't we put some of these conversations that we're having onto a blog or something?
1: Okay. So you started where Peter is to respond to this mounting resistance to to clarify that the Pope is indeed the guarantor of orthodoxy and unity in the Catholic Church. I want to presume the best motivations and intentions on the part of Cardinal Burke and Bishop Strickland and, and all of the Pope's critics, but we're especially talking about them today these are two bishops who are trying their best to promote and protect the Catholic faith as they understand it. They are without a doubt divisive figures, but what are the arguments like for their critical words against Francis? Where are they coming from?
2: Well, let me start first, rather than from the arguments, I think I'll try to describe the mindset and, and to use even Pope Francis's language to help understand it. And it, it's something that I very much subscribe to for a long portion of my Catholic life. I think that Catholics in the US particularly subscribe to ideologies. I think that we have these ideas in our minds that we put ahead of our faith of legitimate authority. We like to be right. And so I think in a lot of cases, and this is Pope Francis also uses the term rigidity. In the case of Cardinal Burke, for example, I discussed how he didn't think that the canon law on annulments was revisable or that he didn't think that there might be circumstances where within the bounds of traditional Catholic doctrine, where people who are in irregular marriage situations might have access to the sacraments he apparently, and a lot of Catholics as well, made up their mind that this was an immovable thing. And so this idea, this ideology took precedence over the magisterium. I think to them, Pope Francis represents a capitulation to secularizing culture. They see his, perhaps his openness or his willingness to engage with people who don't agree with the Catholic Church on everything. His willingness to to open an outstretched palm to Sister Janine Gramic, for example, who for a long time was criticized by church leaders for her work with LGBT people. They see this as potentially opening the door to a collapse in Catholic morality. And I think Pope Francis, to a certain degree, recognizes that he is challenging a protective bunker mentality that a lot of Christians have the impulse is natural i have four kids and i'm concerned about the influences in the culture but you can't shelter your kids either and i think i think that's something that pope francis is calling us to recognize our culture has changed and if we are going to operate and engage within that culture a defensive and Fearful posture simply isn't going to allow the Catholic Church to have a seat at the table in society.
1: We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, the tension between dialogue and decisive action. Stay with us. Mike, one of the big actions that had an outsize impact in the United States and had a lot of outcry was the restrictions on the traditional Latin Mass that Pope Francis issued in *Traditionis Custodas. Now, generally, people who are in favor of Francis will say that he's really lenient with his critics, he allows for all voices to be heard, he really values dialogue, he even values like getting the arguments out there. He wants to hear from people who disagree with him. Critics of Francis in the U.S. say the Pope is authoritarian, that he treats people who have questions or concerns or love the traditional Latin mass unfairly. How do you make sense of that disconnect between those two approaches of Francis?
2: Well, I think in the case of Traditionis Custodes, his decision to restrict the Latin mass, we might note that he did not take action on that for the first eight years of his papacy. And as somebody who has watched the traditionalist movement closely, the rhetoric within that movement was getting more and more extreme against the pope. They had already labeled him a dictator and a tyrant and a heretic they acted as if this was was a surprise. But if you read Samorum Pontificum and the letter that accompanied it, that's Pope Benedict's document that liberalized the use of of the Tridentine mass. He suggested that he didn't see any risk that widening access to the mass would would radicalize people or that the people who liked the older mass were against Vatican II. Well, 14 years later, it, it became quite clear that the leaders of this movement, were very suspicious of Vatican II. And I don't know to what extent the people in the pews bought into all of these ideologies, but it was very clear that the leadership, at least the outspoken public figures that were known for promoting the Latin mass tended to sound a lot like radical traditionalists, for lack of a better term. And so even then, Pope Francis could perhaps have said Guess what? By the end of next year, we're not gonna let you do the the Tridentine Mass anymore. But instead, he allowed for it in in places that needed. I mean, my Archdiocese of Washington still has three Tridentine Masses every Sunday. He designated that in each diocese there would be a priest that would oversee spiritual care for the Latin mass community. So I, you know, even though I think that the measure may have shaken people up and, and non-online Catholics. Maybe we're taken off guard by it i I don't think that leaders of the traditionalist community, just like Cardinal Burke, should have been terribly surprised that that this happened. I mean, they were acting in open defiance of a pope, which is really harmful to church unity. I would challenge that he has been a tyrant in this regard.
1: It seems like the common thread here is that you know he'll he'll wait a while to take a decision, but At some point, he does have to act, right? He wrote in his letter accompanying Traditionis Custodes that he had done a a survey of bishops around the world and determined from this, you could call it a synodal process, that it was time to try to stop this movement of resistance against Vatican II that had become entangled in this. And same with Burke and Strickland. They had been critical of him for a long time. Now, I don't know that they were removed because of their criticisms of him or their attacks on him even. But I wonder if you see their removals as giving an indication of where the line is with Francis, the line you can't cross.
2: Well, it's interesting because I think that in the case of both of them, actually, a lot of a lot of Catholic observers, a lot of their fellow bishops wondered where the line was for Bishop Strickland to have endorsed conspiracy theories and to uh, advise Catholics not to get the vaccine for covid i thought that that physically endangered the members of his of his flock in tyler yet three more years passed before he was removed and the re- the stated reasons at least for his removal seem to be purely administrative so i think that pope francis has a has a strong tolerance for dissenting ideas maybe i agree with with his critics that the line is arbitrary to a certain extent But then again, I think that in reality, it's more likely that he let the line be crossed long ago before acting.
1: And I'm aware as we're talking about this, that you could make the argument that, you know, Burke had his privileges revoked because he was finished with his Vatican jobs and that Strickland was not removed for any critical of Francis reason, but because of these issues with governance in his diocese. So, that complicates the narrative of these two bishops showing us where the line that cannot be crossed is. And some might interpret that as Francis looking for a reason to remove them while actually wanting them out because they're critical.
2: That's, that actually does seem to be consistent with something that, that I've observed during Francis's papacy. I mean, he waited until Cardinal Mueller's five-year term was up before replacing him at the CDF.
1: Speaking of being willing to engage with his critics, Pope Francis then invited Cardinal Buller to be a full voting member of the Synod.
2: Absolutely. And and I think that that was a gesture that definitely showed that there needed to be a, a variety of voices. Pope Francis, I think, is a lot more patient than a lot of his critics give him credit for.
1: Well, some commentators have drawn this line between they say Pope Francis will put up with attacks on him, but he won't put up with attacks that seem to be damaging the papacy. And I, I wonder, do you agree with that interpretation?
2: I think I do. When he criticized EWTN, for example, he said, I deserve criticism because I'm a sinner, but the church is harmed by these kinds of attacks on the pope.
1: You've taken up this role of one of the most vocal defenders of Pope Francis in the US. Is there anything that you disagree with him on?
2: Well, yeah. Yeah. So to be clear, our website, where Peter is, we decided early on that we would not publish any attacks on the Pope or any harsh criticism. Even if we believe that it's warranted, go ahead and write it on your personal blog. Go write for another magazine. But because of the amount of criticism out there against Pope Francis, you won't find it on our site. But obviously, some of the things that he's done, including the handling of some sex abuse cases, has been difficult to, to respond to. His treatment of the Marco Rupnik case has been impossible in my eyes to justify. So I have my own substack, and I wrote an article there harshly criticizing his handling of this case and i would also say that in to some extent i would criticize pope francis for not being attentive to to the issues that we are that our website is trying to respond to i mean there i think if he was perhaps more attentive to the sensitivities and sensibilities of north american conservative catholics went in his teaching and in his explanations perhaps the criticism wouldn't have grown as, as swiftly and become as strong as it is now. I think an argument can be made that, that Pope Francis could do some things to help make our, our site obsolete.
1: If you were, say, advising the Pope on how to relate to Catholics and bishops even in the U.S. who are critical of him, what would you say is an opportunity for bridge building between
2: these two parties? Oh, that's a big question.
1: I know. I tried to end with a good one.
2: <laughs> what I might suggest, and the, and this perhaps, I don't know if it's an opportunity, but I guess since he's the Pope, he can make these kinds of opportunities. I think it would be fruitful for Pope Francis to perhaps engage in a dialogue with some of the more, maybe not the fanatical, but some of the more thoughtful critics of his papacy And to help them understand where he's coming from. I think that deep down and foundationally, in addition to ideology and politicization, is fear. I I don't doubt the sincerity of Pope Francis's critics in the US. I think that there is a lot of fear that he's steering the church in the wrong direction. I think that there are a lot of people that either because they have been listening to these outspoken critics or bought into the rhetoric. I think that they have accumulated a, a lot of tension and resistance to what Pope Francis wants to do. I don't know that I can think of what forum this might take place in, but it would be nice to see perhaps a letter from Pope Francis to American Catholics or to North American Catholics or to traditionalists, helping to explain maybe his his motivations, his concerns. And his methodology obviously it would have to contain some some tough love, but I think there are areas, especially when it comes to sincerity, and when it comes to a desire to live out the faith profoundly, even though they may have different ways of of showing that. I think that that would be a, a step in the right direction to to start a dialogue, and and to lay out some common ground.
1: Mike Lewis of Where Peter Is, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Ricardo De Silva. Audio engineering by Kevin Christopher Robles. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. To keep up with the latest news out of the Vatican, please follow us on Twitter, now X, at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside, without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also follow me on X at Colleen Dully. That's C-O-L-L-E-E-N-D-U-L-L-E. And my usual co-host Jerry O'Connell at Jerry Rome. That's G-E-R-R-Y-O-R-O-M-E. Please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Media. Just click the link in our show notes. It's easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. And if you have a little time to spare, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. For American Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time.
0: Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck. Because every day, there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like... What do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections.